Welcome back, friends, to the latest installment of Cult Up and Chill. Um, I think at this point, I'm just going to speak for the both of us when I say we're just uploading when we feel like uploading at this point, and that's kind of what it's going to be for the foreseeable future. Well, we've been very busy ladies. Um, I can't talk about my exploits right now. Things are in the works. Mm-hmm. Things are moving. But Devin... Devin. Yeah, I started my new hers. job this week. Um, and in addition to that, I decided that I wanted a garden in my backyard. And so I, despite the fact that I am very firmly an indoor cat, did a lot of outdoor work this weekend by myself because my husband is not home. And typically I wouldn't post that on the internet, but by the time this goes live, he will be back home. So come at me, bros. Um, but... <laughs> I did a little garden project to surprise him with when he got home, mostly for my own benefit and also because we're very much going for forgiveness instead of permission in this case, which I find (laughs) to be the key to doing anything in the home that I want to do is just do it. Nine times out of 10, he enjoys the result. And on that one time out of 10, he's just like, deals with it. Not my favorite. Yeah. 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 It's fine. Not my favorite, but I don't hate it. Exactly, exactly. Like Travis the pumpkin head, or did he say that that was excellent? He actually, I think, enjoyed... He like At first, he was like, I don't get it. And it's like, but look at him. And I think eventually that creepy little pumpkin face grew on him. And <laughs> he did... into his eyes. Yeah. I think he enjoys Travis now. Um, and actually... So... Okay, last year, in the summertime, is when Halloween decorations started coming out. So, mm-hmm. in a month or two, you guys, we could potentially be doing Halloween decoration hauls for you. For for me, anyway. I actually might even drive my little happy ass over to Kansas City, which is about a two-hour drive for me, and hit up some of the shops out there to look for some Halloween decor. Very exciting. I mean, my whole vibe is Halloween decor, so it's never out of pocket for me to be like, Skelly's, love it. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's creepy and crawly and bone, bony, spidery, <laughs> love it. But yeah, Amy McWhorter, if you ever find anything like that pumpkin, I would love one as well. Yeah, if you Probably find never another, will, but... another creepy pumpkin head like you sent me, Mom, let us know where <laughs> and how much we need to send you in monetary dollars. I'll, I'll pay, like, I'll pay her whatever just for finder's fee. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. I just, your mom finds the best stuff. She really does. And She's I'm like really jealous. The thrift store, antique store guru whisperer. I right. don't know what you want to call it, but she's always finding like really great stuff. She found this one dishware set that was mm-hmm. worth like 10 times more than what she paid for it and the guy was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll take 50 for it." And so she got like the full set of dishware that's like this beautiful antique like red china. Yeah. I don't know. It's so it's, it's so pretty. I and maybe it's just because the thrift stores out where I live and the antique stores out here are just like not it. But she has amazing luck. Yeah. I but if she is the thrift store antique store queen, I am the Facebook marketplace queen cuz I find it, yeah. like ex like antique furniture 50 bucks. We'll take it. Mhm. I found like a beautiful uh it's, like, something that sits on a buffet. It has, like, a mirror and shelves on it. Very antique. And I f- got it for $25. Mm-hmm. And it's mercury glass in the, the mirror, which, dangerous, whatever. We'll just spray paint over it or something. I don't know. 
<laughs> you know, like over the back. Yeah, it'll be fine. Seal it. Try to seal it. Put some of that, like, uh, what is it? As seen on TV, where they, like, put it on the bottom of the boat on the screen. Oh, and it God, what is that you called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it's like he, like, slaps it on the, it's mm-hmm. a meme. He, like, slaps it on <laughs> <Yeah>. the thing. <laughs> but, yeah, oh, anyway. God. So, I'll just do that. That way I won't get mercury poisoning. Everything will be Flexi fine. Flexi-seal, I Whatever. think is what it's called. Yeah, Flexi-seal. There you go. Speaking I, of memes, though. Okay, so I tried to Google Flexi Seal, and then the first thing that comes up is Flexi Seal rectal tube. Oh, so they're they're it's just their flex Google Ads team seal. is working. Someone yeah, else's garbage I mean, can is rolling down the street now. <laughs> it's like I need to make sure that's not mine because no, I put mine in the garage. It can't be mine. It's Kansas, guys. We've been under a wind advisory for the last couple of days. And <laughs> prior to hitting record, I looked out of the window and I was like, I think that's my trash can just like running away out like through the neighborhood. So I had to run out there and grab it and put it in the garage. And yeah, it's fucking windy. Windy as shit out here. It reminds me, honestly, of that Spongebob episode where they're, like, doing the Krusty Krab pizza, oh, yeah. <laughs> which I think actually Funny Fridays, like, referenced in our last video as well, but they're like, it's a boulder, we rode those things for miles, and it's just... Yeah, you're just sitting on the boulder, and it just... Or that one <laughs> scene where they're, like, can. carrying the pizza, and they're like, can't walk because the wind is getting them, and all the sand is blowing in their face, <laughs> and then the Krusty Krab pizza is just covered in sand. That's also Kansas. Yeah, Kansas, man. But speaking of trash, you want to tell us about uh, the excitement of this week of the the Mormon scandal? Yes. Okay. So (laughs) for those of you that are on TikTok, there is a side of TikTok that is like Utah moms read Mormon mothers. And so apparently there's a group of like seven women and their husbands that are all like part of this weird Utah influencer circle. And they all post online and stuff and apparently they are also all soft swingers with each other so basically i guess what they're constituting soft swinging is that they won't go like all the way with each other and if they do do something sexual with someone else's partner that that person's partner needs to be in the room um well one of the utah moms did not follow that rule with another of the Utah mom's husbands. And they went off into a room on one of these soft swinging retreats that they must do. These two went off into a room by themselves and like broke Mormon mom talk soft swinging code. Well, and aren't they like all in the same room anyway? Like it's just a big party and they get shit face wasted. Yeah. Like all banging each other. Yeah. And apparently like it was a frequent thing. Like they would go on camping trips over to each other's houses. They would have these large swinging events And so the girl that went into the room with the lady's husband, she posted a TikTok live where she just exposed them all. She's like, look, we're soft swingers. This is what happened. I cheated on my husband with this woman's spouse. Now I'm getting a divorce. Well, then one of the other Utah moms goes on TikTok live is like this. She's making it up. It's all a lie. Anyway, it wasn't a lie. They were soft swingers. And now three of the couples in this group, again, there, I think there were seven couples total. Three of them are now getting divorced because of the fallout. We don't know exactly why the third couple is getting divorced. Obviously, 
the first two couples is because of the cheating. And then there's a third couple involved. So I don't know if somehow they were involved too. The story is still coming out. But apparently... The story is still developing. It is still developing. <laughs> and it is just exactly the kind of stupid internet drama that I need. Is these <laughs> TikTok Utah Mormons. Which also, I just need to point out that all of these women that were... They're Mormon. You can very clearly, based off the clothing that they're wearing, tell that they don't take their religion very seriously because there's no way they're wearing the sacred panties and garmies. Yeah, they are not wearing makeup in a God-honoring way. Like No, like, <laughs> you can't wear the sacred underwear and short shorts and crop tops. And, like, that's fine that, that you don't want to, like... I'm not saying that you have to wear the sacred panties, but... The garments. <laughs> if you're going to see, like, be out here, you know... God bless the Mormons, like, espousing your religion. Girls, you gotta actually, like, follow the rules here. Right. But they also, also might be, like, I feel the... like another <laughs> irony of this is, is that they, like, push them to get married so young that I think because they're, like, so inexperienced and, like, have not done or seen much in their life, that apparently in Utah, swinging is very common. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of all these, like, young married people are like, I never have had experiences with anyone but my spouse. And so that they do the swinging thing, which is wild to me. They do all sorts of weird stuff. But there's also, like, two branches of Mormons, I think. So they might be, like, the less strict branch Mm -hmm. of Mormons that are, like, more of a vibe. But I don't know. Because there's, like, I was watching, actually, it was a Funny Fridays video about this. Oh. But... She just did one on, or maybe she didn't just do one on Mormons and she did it a while ago. I don't know. But she's talking about Mormons and how there's, like, a cooler sect. (laughs) And they, like, built their stuff right next to that, like, holy land. Yeah. Though they say, like, is the Garden of Eden, which... (laughs) Fucking Utah. (laughs) Yeah. But they, just to be petty, they just, like, built their, like, main main center right next to it just to be, like... You want to hear the real thing about the Mormon religion? Mm-hmm. So. So maybe they're the cool brand of Mormons and not like the yeah. garment wearing Mormons. Which also it's like the the Mormon thing about caffeine. The other thing about Utah is they have all these like soda shops rather mm-hmm. than like coffee shops. But it's like, babes, you're not getting caffeine free. Like soda still has caffeine in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the Mormon rules I don't quite understand. And also the thought of putting milk in a Diet Coke and then, like, drinking it as if it's a coffee makes me want to vomit. Well, and it curdles. Like... Yeah. It curdles, it loses, it's fizzy. Like, I can see a root beer because that has, like, less carbonation. Uh, yeah, but, like, a root beer float, kind of. Mm-hmm. Or, but, like, a cream soda, something like that. Yeah. But, like, in a, in a Coke? Ugh. No. Yeah, apparently one of, like... The only reason I know this, I don't know how I got so deep into Utah TikTok, but there's this one girl that works at a Sodi shop, and she's like, yeah, oh, yeah like, I, the most popular drink is a Diet Coke with a splash of lime juice and then cream, mm-hmm. and, like, that's basically, like, just put rum in it. That's what you're yeah. supposed to do with that, is just put rum in it. Well, and it's also, like, babes, you're getting a Diet Coke, but you're putting just, like, straight fat into it. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's a low-fat creamer or something. I don't know, but... Just get the regular Coke at that point. Well, and also just get a coffee. Like... Yeah. <laughs> just just get a coffee. 
No, I mean, I love a Sodi, and I love a Sodi shop as much as the next person, but I just don't get, like, they're, they're like, we can't do this, so we're just going to do everything but that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, like soaking. soaking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, oh, which, if you guys don't know what soaking is, Google it. It's a trip. Or don't. Maybe you don't want to. No. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the vibe today. No. <laughs> Mormons do be out here doing the most and also the least at the same time. Not as we're, not as bad as the, uh, like, fundy, like, Baptist fundies. Like the mm. Duggar fundies. Ooh, yeah, Josh Duggar got sentenced this week. Not enough. No. I mean, he got, like, 12 years. I think the max was 20, so he... Thankfully, all of his kids will be grown, I think, for the most part. No, he'll have some that are still, like, in the home, but eh, I don't know. He's icky. He gives me the big ick. So does Jim well, Bob no, I thought it Michelle. Was, I thought he had multiple charges, so it was, like, 20 per charge. So, like, the max he could have been in there is for, like, 60 years. Oh, I don't... Yeah, that could be right. All I know is that he got 120 months. All right, do we want to get into it so we can... Yeah, yeah, let's start the story. Get our lunch. Get our snackies. Snacky snackies. Snacky snacks. <clears throat> okay. So my story today is guided by the fact that uh, I was just like, hmm, what's something that I have been interested in uh, my entire life pretty much since I could read? And I took out a book from the library that was like, Famous hauntings. I was like, this is great reading material for a six year old. <laughs> anyway, so one of the premier stories in that book was about the Borley Rectory. And it was described as the most haunted house in England. And that has just had a grip hold on my psyche ever since I read that book at like six years old. Because I was, I, we'll just say it, I was a weird kid. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I want these books on murders and like strange things from the library. That's what I want to take out. But I remember seeing the photos of the ghosts in the rectory, and I was like, who is she? I need to know more about her. So I was like, we'll, just, we'll talk about that today. So the Borley Rectory was constructed on Hall Road near the Borley Church by Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull in 1862. The Gothic-style red brick house was built to replace an earlier rectory that had been destroyed in a fire about 20 years prior. It eventually included... Uh, like an addition of a whole wing to the house that the 14 children of the bull family along or to fill out with the 14 children of the bull family along with all the modern conveniences of the time which were basically just like servants bells and secret passages so the servants could pass through and not be seen mm. by the members of the family um the borley church actually is pretty old parts of which date back to the 12th century i think the nave is from the 12th century they think and the whole Borley area, it kind of serves as a rural community seat for the three surrounding hamlets. So it's like basically like the biggest shit pile in the middle of all the other shit piles. Which, sorry if you're from that area, I'm sure it's lovely. It's probably nicer than any of our shit piles. <laughs> but I'm just picturing it like not necessarily where I live because I live near a larger city, but like where you came from and like, you know. Alito's a lovely town. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. We'll cut that out. 
that's okay. Place you can live it in. I don't live live there anymore. The place where your family lives, though, the rhubarb capital of the world, <laughs> is a lovely place. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's just it's the biggest the biggest nearby Girl, town. Speaking of, so <laughs> apparently there are to rent a house in that town twelve hundred dollars. That's unheard of, but isn't there, like, a guy that, like, won the lottery and, like, moved back yeah. there and was, like, I'm going to develop all this stuff and try to make it a really nice place, but it's just, like, sir. Mm-hmm. He yeah. has purchased some buildings in the downtown area, which the downtown area, it's not much of a downtown. There is one, there's two bars and a Mexican restaurant um, in a very small town with really nothing else, a Walmart and McDonald's. That's right. it. And he's purchased these buildings and he's, like, developing the upstairs portions of these buildings into luxury apartments that he's wanting, like, $1,500 a month to like rent manage out. manage your expectations. The only employers in this town are, like, blue-collar manufacturing and Walmart. And you think someone's going to be able to afford to pay $1,500 a month to live there? You think anyone's going to want to pay $1,500 a month to live there when you could pay that in the nearby city commute 40 minutes into work right i don't know it's it's stupid i digress back to the rectory yeah but this is what they were doing they built this really nice expensive house in not a great part of town so well it was it was it's not that it wasn't a great part of town it was just there was nothing around Mm -hmm. so that might make a little bit of sense later as well um, so there is a rumor that actually on the grounds of the rectory, there was originally a Benedictine monastery that was haunted. The story of the haunting goes that a monk from the monastery had a forbidden affair with a nun from a nearby convent. And when they discovered the affair, uh, the monk lost his head and the nun was bricked up alive in the convent walls. However, the rumor has been disproven mainly because like they didn't do that. They're just like, go out and, you know. Go out and live your lives if you're mm-hmm. going to be fucking. <laughs> um, that, coupled with the fact that, like, they don't think that there's actually a monastery on the grounds at all. Like, they don't have any evidence for that. And is widely speculated to have been started by the Bull children in an attempt to romanticize the rectory or, like, explain some of what they were seeing or experiencing. Wait, so, for those uncultured and ungodly heathens can you explain what a rectory is because it took me until just now to put together what it was so a rectory is like where a priest lives or a reverend lives it's usually paid for by the church on the church property so what you'll see a lot is you'll see like you know the cathedral the church whatever and then there is a large house next to it or it could be small it doesn't really matter but it's just a house that is paid for by the parish so that the reverend can live there and then they basically get like bored to stay there and I think it has to do somewhat with like taxes in certain areas like you don't have to pay taxes if it's part of the church property whereas like if you had to like if you had a separate house and you'd have to pay taxes on it or something um also like they get a stipend while they're living there so they can buy other stuff what they need but usually it's not a whole lot Mm -hmm. well for some places it's not but like they're moving a lot of the churches are moving more towards like your stipend is fairly low like lower than buying luxury items you know mm-hmm. like you see the priests that are just buying like gucci and you're like hmm that how are pisses we me off. like <laughs> when i see 
a pass. This is like especially on the East Coast. I would see this a lot right. where there would be like a pastor of a church that's like rolling around in a fucking Rolls Royce with like luxury. Well, items. in the like, South too. There is no like reason. An- that money that you are profiting off of the church, think about how much good you could be doing and instead you're buying yourself. Like, that to me does not scream like I am a man of God, whatever you want to call that. It just is, like, selfishness. See, and, we like, have some cousins. Yeah, like, we have some cousins that are apostolics and, like, all of their parishioners live in trailers and they live in a mansion with, like, stained glass mm-hmm. and a swimming pool. And they're apostolics, so they, like, buy the expensive modesty swimsuits and mm-hmm. it's just, like... Boy. Have you ever girl. watched The Righteous Gemstones? Mm-mm. Oh my god. Highly recommend if you ever get your hands on an HBO Max account. Watch oh, The do. Righteous Gemstones. It is hysterical. It's about a family like that that like they run a mega church and they just like live this ridiculous lifestyle. But mm-hmm. ten out of ten, watch it. it you'll it's hilarious to me. No, I had to get HBO Max so I could watch the gay pirate show. Okay, yeah, and <laughs> I did love the Gay Pirate Show and the Gilded Age. Danny McBride, however, is in um, Righteous Gemstones, and he cracks me up, so. That's the next on your list. Definitely watch it. It's really, really good. I will. Also, well, I'm going to wait to watch the Gilded Age mm-hmm. as a little treat. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to have to get caught up on that. So, anyway... They they moved into this rectory. The family moved into this rectory. And the first paranormal events to occur inside the house were unexplained footsteps, which were heard by the locals and sort of maids, servants, whatever, people just coming in. Your average folk coming in around 1863, about a year after the construction was finished on the house. Nothing too exciting with 14 kids. It very well could have just been one of them running around, like, in the secret passages. But things got weirder when four of the bull daughters claimed that while they were playing outside around twilight, then a nun appeared out of nowhere. They approached her and were like, hey, what's going on? Do you need any help? Why are you all the way out here in the middle of nowhere? What's, what are you doing? But they said as they got closer, she actually disappeared into thin air. Now, despite being God-fearing church folk, they were still what I'm imagining imagining as UK equivalent of hillbillies. So they were like talking about it to everybody. They were talking about it to the organist, the butcher, the baker, whatever. And so they brought in people to kind of observe this behavior. In addition to the nun and the noisy footsteps ghost, it was also later claimed that there was a phantom coach that would just drive around and it was actually being driven by two headless horsemen. It would just like skirt around everywhere like skrr yeah and there was also a pianist ghost that would just play the piano so the bulls lived at the yeah just like (laughs) (laughs) so the bulls lived at the house and they just suffered through the mild haunting for the next four decades and the people of the town came in witnessed a lot of the phenomenon and over the four decades, the original Reverend Bull passed away, and one of his male ch- children, Henry, who's also known as Harry for some reason, eventually took up his father's mantle as the Reverend of the parish until June 9th, 1927, when Harry actually passed away, ending the Bull's f- Bull family's residence there. The following year, the parish, they found a replacement in Reverend Guy Eric Smith, Guy and his wife moved into the house, and they just started cleaning up. And I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but, like, when you move into an old house, you tend to find a lot of random just garbage and shit laying around. 
So, like, when we moved in here, we found, like, just random glass and shit buried in the yard and, like, garbage left in the walls or in the attic because, like, when they were building the houses, a lot of these houses don't have insulation. It's, like, an air insulation system. So they just leave shit around. Whatever. So anyways, the good lady, Smith, she's cleaning out the cupboards and she's, like, finding a bunch of shit and she finds this brown paper package. And, you know, she's like, this is kind of hefty. You know, maybe this is something nice or maybe this is, like, my husband put this here as, like, a late anniversary present. So she's, like, got her greedy little mitts on it. She's opening up and (laughs) instead of something lovely and nice, she finds a young woman's skull. And she's just like, all right, okay, cool. You have to remember this is England, so... It's not totally out of pocket to find just, like, body parts laying around. Especially, I think, in a rectory. Because another thing about churches is a lot of times they'll have, like, saints' bones in the altar. Especially Catholic churches, but sometimes other churches do as well. They just have, like, saints' bones and artifacts and relics just laying around. Mm -hmm. Because, like, to be a church, you have to have saint relics. So Yeah, yeah. She was like, this could be a murder. This could just be, like, a saint's head. I don't know. We'll just, we'll put this to the side. I don't have time for this right now. I'm cleaning this house. Um, Shortly after this find, the Smith family actually started to report a variety of unexplained paranormal phenomena, including the servants' bells ringing despite being totally disconnected, lights appearing in the windows, and unexplained footsteps. It wasn't until the good lady Smith saw the headless horseman carriage skirt up that she was like, "Mm, we are way out of our depth here. And so she called the Daily Mirror begging for help. So the Smith family thought that the newspaper would be able to get them in touch with the Society for Psychical Research, or Psychic, yeah, Psychical Research, which I'm going to refer to as the SPR because I obviously cannot say that and it's not full. <laughs> Anyways, the SPR, um, which we are a little bit familiar with since our old pal Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a member at the time, um, and I think we talked about it mm-hmm. earlier, but... They would basically go around and vet out these paranormal events and try to either discredit them or prove them and be like, yes, this is in fact ghosts or no, this is just some guy with a candle in the window. But basically the arrangement that it seems like the paper and the SPR had was that the paper would send people out to vet it before the SPR like spent time investigating it. Um, they also kind of were like Chris Kardashianing it so that They could, like, build up some hype about it in the papers so that people were buying the papers and be like, oh, like, this ghost thing is going on. Like, we're going to be sending the SPR out. Like, oops, we're going to be sending them out to investigate. But, like, they would send lesser investigators out first to kind of see, you know, like, what they could find and what sort of phenomena was going on and if they could discredit it before sending out, like, the big guns. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it was, like, mutually beneficial because they were selling a lot of papers and then... The SPR was getting a lot of, like, publicity about this. And then the owners of the house, too. So, like, it was really beneficial for everyone in the situation. Um, so, on June 10th, 1929, the newspaper sent out a reporter and Harry Price, a re- respected but skeptical paranormal researcher, sort of like, uh, what is it? Caps. What's that one? Oh, I can't. All I can think of is Ghost Adventures, but it's that's Ghost Zach Hunters? Beggins. Yeah, Ghost Hunters. Yeah. So it's kind of like them. Like, they're going out and trying to... He was going out most of the time trying to see, like, what he could disprove first. Like, oh, it's just, you know, the floor is unlevel, mm-hmm. so that's why the ball is rolling down the floor. But anyways, so he 
went out to make his first visit to the house. Harry Price arrived on June 12th, and immediately he was, like, getting hit by rocks, vases, buttons, bottles, and other random shit, just, like, being thrown by unseen hands, seemingly coming from nowhere. He was also hearing spirit messages that were tapped on the frame of a mirror, and he was just like, all right, I got proof this place is haunted as fuck, and he just dipped out. However, the good Lady Smith was like, mm, none of that happened before after you left. Like, I think things were, like, getting thrown, but they weren't, like, getting pelted at people's heads. And she was like, I, mm, I think you're full of shit. And we still have ghosts. Like, you're not, you, you didn't do anything about this. <laughs> um, also, like, if you're familiar with one of our previous episodes where Devin talked about the spiritualist movement, he, Harry Price is actually friends with colleagues and other or friends and colleagues with other famed paranormal skeptics such as harry houdini so this was kind of like an out-of-pocket accusation her being like i think you faked this didn't really match his vibe but it's also totally plausible that he did create all of this himself because he would go on to write a wildly popular book about it called the most haunted house in england and it was claimed to be sort of the holy grail of paranormal evidence for the next decade or so so it kind of seems like mm, maybe he just wanted to make a lot of money off of this it could go either way another hypothesis in the situation is that the spr actually had sent someone to fake the phenomena so harry would think it was real because they were running out of steam and they needed some publicity but like the spr was pretty skeptical when it came to this kind of thing like they were really trying to make sure that it wasn't any sort of natural, naturally occurring phenomena or, like, faked paranormal stuff before they acknowledged that it was real. And as a matter of fact, that's why Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ended up quitting because they were debunking too much, and he's just like, you're not letting me have any fun here. <laughs> so despite most of the hauntings being casual for the Smiths, which, this remember, this was something the Bulls lived with for, like, 40 years. The Smiths decided that the Ghost Adventures life, it was not for them. They were not cut out to be ghost hunters. So just about a year after they moved in, they actually left and transferred to a different rectory. After the, their newfound fame, the parish, they had a little bit of an issue sourcing replacement because everyone's like, we don't want to live in a haunted rectory. Not for us. Until eventually they found a replacement in one of the cousins of the Bull family, Reverend Lionel Algernon Foister and his wife, Marianne, and their adopted daughter, Adelaide. So, I don't know what about this family makes people want to be priests, but whatever. <laughs> the Foisters immediately experienced weird phenomena, such as phantom bell ringing, as reported before, windows shattering, stones and bottles being pelted at them, wall writing where like something would appear on the wall like it was being written in water or something and it would just like stay there for a while uh they also experienced adelaide the adopted daughter being locked in a room that didn't have a key or i think it had a lock but like they didn't know where the key was and it wasn't like she had just locked herself in there and also being attacked by quote something horrible they never really elaborated on that they're just like she got attacked uh, Marianne, the wife, claims that she received a slew of poltergeist activity, including being violently thrown from the bed. Ooh. Twice, Lionel tried to conduct exorcisms, but, like, to no avail. In the middle of the first exorcism, he was actually, like, hit by a softball-sized stone that just totally derailed it. Um, the Daily Mirror and SPR's plan seemingly was, like, working. Like, they were getting traction. They were reporting on this. They were like, look at this. They failed exorcisms. 
many ghosts, haunting is just increasing. So this story caught the interest of many paranormal researchers who all agreed that the phenomena was either consciously or subconsciously being caused by Marianne. Marianne had claimed that it was her husband and one of the other paranormal researchers that was actually causing the phenomena, not her, and that some of the phenomena was, like, definitely just a casual haunting, not, like, a poltergeist associated with a person. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little fucky and kind of, like, the Mormon, like, soft-swinging cheating scandal we talked about earlier. (laughs) Like, I have suspicions that all these people were just, like, hanging out in this huge house and they were just, like, fucking each other. Oh, God. Because... Like, I have, a, like, a theory that Lionel was, like, gay, and he was just like, oh, look at all these nice man paranormal investigators. Um, my only evidence for this is that they had an adopted daughter and no other children. But, I mean, like, they could have been infertile, but I'm just like, that That boy's gay. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that. <laughs> um, this Not theory that there's does anything have... wrong with that. No. But. But I truly believe that. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like, get your freak on, guys. If you want to have, like, ghosty, haunted house, sexy times, whatever. But this theory actually... I follow a girl on TikTok who, like, is in a very intimate, personal, and Rebecca the Ghost relation. Guide. Yes! Rebecca the Ghost <laughs> Guide has a ghost With boyfriend. With a ghost. Also has a... And a real boyfriend. ...mortal husband. <laughs> and... She, like, posts these reenactions of, like, the conversation she has with her ghost boyfriend. And also, like, apparently they do have, um, they are intimate. So maybe it was, like, the paranormal investigators and the family and everybody and the ghosts were all, you know. Fucking. (laughs) But this theory, this is not just speculation. This actually has some traction. So the, 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 the swinging, the soft swinging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Marianne actually admitted to having a spicy affair with a lodger, Frank Peerless, and that she had used some of the paranormal... Like, later, after all this happened, she's like, yeah, I did say that some of this stuff was paranormal just because she wanted to cover up her liaisons. Yeah. So, you know, if one... I think I think there's a deeper layer of truth to this that everybody was, you know... Boinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, after a little while, they actually left due to Lionel's poor health um, around, I think, 1935. And Borley Rectory, it sat vacant until Harry Price decided to finish what he started. He's like, I have to know more about her. And he wanted to go investigate more. So Harry took out a year-long rental agreement with the owners of the property. And he went out, recruited 48 official observers, quote-unquote, to collect evidence of any paranormal phenomena that occurred. And these were mostly, like, students and just, like, people that were younger and didn't have much going for them that summer. Um, it's at this point that Harry sort of lost any and all plausible de- deniability he had because he started to kind of play into the play into the narrative that this was a haunted house by faking a lot of shit. So... He, uh, he was out here, he was having seances, he was conducting these scenes, and he was like, one of these spirits, one of these spirits is a French nun known as Marie Laure, according to the Ouija board, because they're using a Ouija board to figure all this out, which, of course, long time of to be on a Ouija board, you know, mm. but according to the Ouija board, Marie Laure was a nun who traveled to England to marry a member of the Wald 
Waldegrieve family, the ancestral owners of the nearby 17th century manor house in the area. She had been murdered and her body had been thrown into a disused well or buried in a cellar somewhere nearby. And it was claimed that the wall writings from when the Foister family resided there are said to be Marie begging for help, as one of them said, Marianne, please help get me out. The second spirit that he allegedly made contact with was identified as Sune Amores, and he claimed that he would set fire to the rectory that very same night, which was March 27th in 1938. He said that at the times that the rectory burned down, the bones of a murdered person would be revealed. Well, the fire didn't occur that night, but the rectory did catch fire. So about a year later, um, after Price, he had collected all the evidence he needed to write his book. Uh, the rectory had actually been sold off to Captain W.H. Gregson. While Cappy was in there unpacking boxes, he accidentally knocked over an oil lamp that was in the hallway. Um, yeah, despite having the modern conveniences of 1862, it had never actually been hooked up to gas or electricity. So the house, like... He was using this oil lamp to see, and there's oil lamps everywhere, but the house, like, quickly burned to the ground, because you have to imagine, like, there's a lot of stuff that's Mm -hmm. highly flammable. Oh, yeah. It's also important to note that the insurance company determined that the blaze was started intentionally. They were like, this shit was burned on purpose, so that's a little suspicious. Also, for something that is that famous... And that guy to have moved in, it's a little hard for me to believe that it just, like, accidentally caught on fire. Right. Yeah, like, it is a little suspicious. <laughs> a little sus. A little sus. So, while the the rectory was burning down, a witness from the nearby Borley Lodge actually claimed to have seen the figure of a ghostly nun in the upstairs window, but she would not give the full details until she had been paid her one guinea for her story. <laughs> uh... So the rectory, it just burned down, and they didn't really do anything about it. The outside walls, they were all, like, the bricks, so they were still standing, but obviously, like, the inside woodwork, everything was burned. So it's just, like, the shell of a building. Um, f- about four years after it did burn down, Harry Price got permission to dig in the basement, and he spent a few minutes just stifling or shuffling around with his little trowel, and he allegedly <laughs> found two bones that appeared to be of be from a young woman. Um, and he was like, yep, these are the bones that we were talking about, but the bones, they're kind of an object of controversy in themselves because the Borley church would not even inter them in their yard. They had to be taken to the nearby Liston churchyard because it was widely believed by pretty much everyone that they were just pig bones. And like Harry Price had taken them in there and been like, ah, yes, the bones that we were talking about, (laughs) I found them. Um, Harry Price, he published his book. He made a bunch of money. Uh, Holy grail of paranormal evidence. He was pretty happy with the situation. He was calling the Borley Rectory the most haunted place in the UK, getting a bunch of interviews, whatever. But here's where things really go south for, for Harry. Which is not until after his death in 1948, but the Daily Mail reporter Charles Sutton, he came out and he had claimed that while he had been investigating the rectory with Harry, he was hit in the head by a large pebble. And Charles was like, he grabbed what Harry and he's like, Constitutes yeah. a large pebble. Because to Smaller me, than a, softball, a pebble like, would be like a tiny little rock. Whereas 
you know, something larger than a tiny little rock, AKA this to me would be a large pebble. Probably something about that big, yeah. Okay, well, for... So about the size of a quarter. Visual reference, you guys. This... Okay, so, Charles, he just got decked in the head by a rock, and he grabbed Harry, and he's like, what the fuck, man? So he, like, checked his pockets. He just, like, frisked him real quick, and he discovered that Harry's pockets were chock full of rocks, and he was like, dude, you just hit me in the head with a rock, you prick. (laughs) But he, like, didn't talk about it, because he was just like, I don't feel like messing with this right now like he has too mm-hmm. much credibility so in an effort to control the damage like it this case had a lot of publicity and the spr had never actually gone out and investigated it but they were like we should probably go look and you know like either we need to make a comment on this or else we're gonna look like idiots yeah so they decided to do their own in- independent investigation into the evidence made by harry price And they discovered that most of the phenomena had actually just been fraudulently produced or naturally occurring phenomena due to the weird architecture of the house and, like, all the secret passages and stuff. There's also just, like, random holes in the wall everywhere. Um, Despite some paranormal research people backing up Harry, those people didn't really have any evidence to back up their claims, so the the common opinion was that he had just faked everything. And... The real blow to Harry's credibility came when one lad named Louis Meyerling revealed that he, in fact, had been responsible for most of the hauntings over the <sighs> lifespan of the house. So, Louis acclaimed that he arrived in Borley in 1918 when the Bulls lived there as, as a child at six years old, and that he was hired by the bored and eccentric Reverend Bull to pluck the strings on the piano through the hole in the wall to spook guests amongst other things like just walk around run around whatever and that the whole boardly rectory like haunting situation was simply like a haunted house sort of thing like they were just delighting and spooking people it was like a form of entertainment that's why nothing was really that serious he was just like it was just for fun like we were we're just doing it because we were bored and obviously it's the middle of bumfuck nowhere when we have not even like gas running through this house so um, Lewis claims that the family members and the servants were encouraged by the Reverend Bull to tell tales of what they had seen. So, like, the coach story was likely never a thing. Um, and they encouraged to exploit the many hidden doors and passages to create the paranormal phenomena. Not just, like, Lewis, who was, like, actively... That's really all he did at the time. But, like, the servants were encouraged. Like, if they're... Oh, if you're just walking through, like, tap, tap, tap on the wall and mm-hmm. scare people. Um, the Lady Bull, the Reverend's wife, had actually claimed to have never seen any actual paranormal activity. And, like, the children were like, no, we did see some, but most of it was just made up. Um, and Lewis claimed that while the Smiths were there, he wasn't there, but when the Foisters took over Borley, they retained Lewis as the resident house ghost, uh, which is something that Lionel Foister even admitted to that, you know, like, He's getting paid six pounds a week to live there. He's like, we gotta, we need to ramp up the money here. I got a wife and adopted kid and my other exploits I have going on. So he hired Lewis to come in and do, like, create all this fake phenomena and try to get the news in on it so that people would come and pay to stay there, you know, like, give them money basically as, I don't know, to keep, keep the house going. So he's like, we got to get this, get this dough, get that bank. 
Marianne also later admitted to playing pranks along, playing like pranks on her husband and additional, additionally to the paranormal activity stuff to like cover up the affair. Um, she was like, yeah, we were just like fucking around. Uh, <laughs> like literally both. She's like, it was fun. Whatever. The Foisters even went so far as to install a new water heater, which emitted a heavy knocking sound whenever it turned on. And they were like, oh, my God, it's so scary. What is that knocking? (laughs) Uh, They also dusted the baseboards with a phosphorus powder that catches fire when exposed to the air. So they would, like, kind of pack it in the holes and stuff. And then, like, they would kind of brush by it and it would be exposed to the air. And it would That seems, like, really unnecessarily dangerous yeah it was which probably didn't help the fact that it like burned down so much like right so quickly. <laughs> it was probably still like packed full of fucking phosphorus powder Jeez, right well and i think it was like they were doing it like the stone like the stone parts of it so it wasn't like that bad mm-hmm. but um they also discovered that like the house had been constructed with a type of stone that like if you like write on it like it retains moisture really well so that's where like the ghost writing came Mm. from so lewis would have to go around and like write shit on the walls and then it would just like be there for a while so like long enough that someone would just encounter it and like not catch him uh lewis also would walk around the gardens at dusk in a black cape with like a high (laughs) collar and like they're like oh it's the headless monk who got his head chopped off Low and he's writing would be cryptic- very fun to do that yeah that would be kind of fun but they're like oh yeah he got his head chopped off Ooh. and that yeah it was just <laughs> like it the the theater of it like the pageantry like he why? just like really wanted to be an actor but this is like as he close did. as he was able to ever get well and it's like i mean they are bored but like at this point we're getting into the like late 30s or like the 30s which you think about the 30s like they had movies like they had electricity what what's going on here um lewis does say that there was one weird incident that he was never able to explain and was actually pretty like scary and dangerous According to Lewis, on Easter of 1935, the Foisters had a group of friends over for a seance. They chose an underground cellar. They were just sitting in silence waiting for something to happen. Someone coughed was and was about to speak in the group when the kitchen bells clanged together in a single clash, which was impossible for them to do. Like, they were too far apart. They shouldn't have been able to, like, touch each other. Um, also, the house is empty, so it's not like someone should have been able like no one was there to do it Mm -hmm. all the people that would have been creating the phenomena were in the basement um and that like startled one of the men and he jumped up and there was a lightning strike of a silver blue light which appeared to implode from all of the surfaces of the cellar like into the group after the implosion of this like flash of light every member of the seance was struck by like an instant paralysis that lasted for about five seconds and they just couldn't move um after this event, Lewis was actually blinded in both his eyes, but he eventually regained sight in one of his eyes. But he remained shaken by those events until later in life. He's like, there was nothing that we were doing there that should have caused this. But it's like, they might have just been testing out something, and then it went it went tits up, and they're like, oh, let's never do that again. <laughs> I love that so, phrase. It went tits up. 
literally went tits up. Um, so yeah, the the story of the Borley Rectory basically is that they were just fucking around. Everybody was fucking around. Um, the children of the Bull family, some of them did admit to creating some of the phenomena, but some of them did claim to have experienced the paranormal phenomena. And like I said, with the Smith family, like Lewis wasn't there while the Smith family was there, was there so it was a little weird that they were also experiencing like some of the very similar phenomena because at that point it wasn't like I mean it was pretty well known that there was paranormal stuff going on but they were also like why why is it happening to us like we're Mm -hmm. not we're just here to be church people the other thing is that like the servants might have still been like perpetuating some of the stuff like just you know like knocking on the walls and throwing stuff to like Mm -hmm. for scare them right the other thing that, like, I mean, we've kind of talked about it before, um, is that it might have been, like, sometimes in haunted places that maybe weren't originally haunted, it's, like, people put so much energy into, like, I think this is haunted, that, like, I think personally sometimes, like, you can manifest stuff that's not a ghost or anything, but it's mm-hmm. just, like, you know, shadow people or whatever. Like, I think that's what shadow people are, is, like, they're just a manifestation of people wanting to be scared by ghosts, so I think that also might have been a part of it, like, it was wishful thinking, but, like, the SPR had determined, a lot of it was just caused by, like, the natural acoustics of the weird architecture of the house. Because, yeah. yeah, it, that was the thing. Like, they just, they just did whatever they felt like. So, who's to really say if it was real haunting or not? Not me. Hmm. But it's burned down now. It's bungalows. But that's the story of the Borley Rectory. Why do I feel like Arthur Conan Doyle was just, like, the olden time Zach Baggins? I feel like he was. Also, and I don't know what in the story sparked. I have ADHD, ADHD brain where like you will say something completely random and then my brain will like go down a path and lead me to point B. And <laughs> some point during that story, I just came up with a really fun birthday present for you. So that was a great <laughs> choice because now I feel like I have a great idea for something to get you for your birthday. Um, so... And it really, Is thinking it back, absolutely nothing to do with anything you just told me. But like I said, you said one thing and then it just spiraled and then eventually it got to point B. It's like, I don't know how I got here, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> is it another jar of dirt? Because I'd love another it jar is, of dirt. No, it's not another jar of dirt. I feel <laughs> like I was bamboozled once and I will not fall for that trick again unless I am the one personally collecting dirt from a site that I know to be haunted. So... I'm very excited for this, so I'm going to have to pick up a few things at Hobby Lobby today. Aside from the things that I was already picking up. And speaking of picking up, a little stinky girl just came in here <gasps> and wants What a baby, attention. let me see. Let me bring the baby up to the camera. Hang on, I gotta take my earbuds out, but she's been sitting here like, I want attention. Come here, you chonk chonk. Oh, baby. Has she? Oh, baby, look at the fatty. Oh, look at that. Oh, she says hello. Everybody. She says, let me down. (laughs) She's a very important part of this cult family. And she's so cute. Say something into the mic. Give them a squeak. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's fine. You don't have to have anything to say right now. Um, Just know that I'm disappointed in you. What a failure. What a failure. You're so cute, though. (laughs) She, like, at one point, 
I heard her hop off of her little tree, and then she walked in here and just sat here, stared at me, and flopped down. I was like, you just want attention, so. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, that was a good story. (sighs) I I thoroughly enjoy a good haunting story. Well, not real haunting story. Well. it's also, like, we have weird stuff happen at our house all the time, and I'm just like... How did they get so lucky that it was not actually a ghost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, everything about that home would scream to me that, yes, it would indeed be haunted. And maybe it is. And maybe they were just, like, playing it up. But I guess yeah. we'll never know. Yeah, because it's burned down now. It done burnt to the ground, baby. It went up like a... Christmas tree on the 4th of July. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, shall I get into my but, story here? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go. So, fun fact about me is that in addition to moths and the dark, one of my greatest fears in life is interacting with children because <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. And then like one of the scariest horror movie tropes to me is children, creepy children. And so like this week I decided I either need to traumatize myself further or like get myself over the fear. So I chose to talk to you about the 11 year old serial killer named Mary Bell. So we're going to set the scene. Mary, she was born on May 26th in 1957 in Newcastle, England. Um, And fun fact, she's a Gemini, just like our dear friend Ashley here. So maybe that explains things. But also, okay, so have you ever seen that chart where it gives like the zodiac signs (laughs) listed for being like known serial killers? Yeah, they're all Gemini's. (laughs) <laughs> While I was researching this, I actually looked it up to see what the percentage of serial killers to Gemini, what the pipeline was there. <laughs> so, and actually, according to, it's a website called Astrology Zodiac Signs. They, like, went over 500 different serial killers to see what Zodiac Signs contained the most serial killers. And actually, they found that Cancer, Pisces, and Sagittarius, and Scorpio, those four, accounted for almost 40% of all serial killers. And but then I Gemini like, and Go ahead. I feel like Gemini though is like the serial killers that are the worst are Gemini. Like the serial talking. killers that got away with it, I think. <laughs> There's probably a lot more Geminis <laughs> that we just don't know about. But like of known ones, there's only like five point five percent are Geminis. Um And Libras are actually ahead of Geminis as far as serial killer tendencies go. So I'm more statistically likely to murder you than Ashley is. So don't catch me in a dark alley, bitch. Maybe it is just like Gemini slander, but also like... Uh... Dahmer was a Gemini. And Mm. you're thinking about like the scope. Like he very nearly did not get caught. So... Yeah, so that's maybe the the caveat here is that they were only (laughs) studying statistics based off of serial serial killers that got caught. And there are plenty of serial killers out there that have never been caught. So maybe (laughs) they are all Geminis. (laughs) I was actually talking about this the other day with someone where I was like, yeah, Geminis are like 
pretty pretty well known for being like vicious serial killers mm-hmm. like vicious that like the normal serial killers whatever but you yeah want the ones that only got like two it. or three people yeah yeah no. barely a serial killer like mm-hmm. but anyways yeah anyway so continuing <laughs> yeah there is a distinct pipeline between being a gemini and murdering people um <laughs> so just take that for for what what you will take that for anyways that has nothing to do with our story um just a fun little detour <laughs> on our stop through hell um so mary's mother her name was betty bell and betty was a sex worker she started in the industry when she was suddenly 17 um or much younger than that so she had mary when she was 17 so she likely was trafficked if i had to guess but she was a sex worker um Allegedly, the first thing that Betty Bell said when Mary was born was, take this thing away from me. <laughs> so let's just take a moment because like Betty, she was young. She was 17 when she gave birth. So there's like no way she actually wanted to be in that industry because she was still a freaking child. So like, there's also definitely no way that she wanted to have a baby. So I don't really blame her for this. I mean, I do blame her for everything else shitty that she does further on down the line. Um, Anyways, so Mary's father, they don't know who he was. Um, He was one of the clients of Betty. So that's fucked up. Um, (laughs) Despite Betty's reaction to giving birth being, take this thing away from me, she did keep Mary and raise her. Um, and so when Mary was just one years old, her mom ends up marrying a name, uh, sorry, marrying a man named Robert, um, who did step up into a fatherly role, but he was an armed robber by trade. So Mary's really just being set up for failure from a very early age here. And Mary Betty and Robert, they also happened to live in a small town called Scottswood in a house that was often described as being in a state of constant filth. And another little fact about this town they live in, Scottswood, at the time it was like a very low income town with a notoriously high rate of crime, violent crime in particular. Um, More specifically, the neighborhood in which Mary lived was notorious for violent crimes, for domestic abuse, drug use, for being... um, really high density of sex workers and it was just not a good place to be. But despite all of this, the children on Mary street were kind of allowed to run wild and they would basically like from the age of literally two, three years old, be turned out into the street to go play with all their like little hooligan friends. And then they would be out there until like midnight when the parents were done Mm. being up to no good basically. So Our story is going to get real fucked up for a second here. So I'm going to, anyone that is really sensitive to SA, CSA, I'm going to touch on it briefly because I could go into more details, but I just didn't feel like it was totally necessary. You'll get the picture here, but skip ahead a couple minutes in the story if that's something that really like triggers you. Um, So here's your warning. Brief pause. Okay, now we're going to get into it. So Mary's mom. Betty. She has a severe bipolar disorder. She was an alcoholic. She was likely abused herself growing up. And in addition to that, her specialty within her field of sex work, despite having violent tendencies already due to the bipolar disorder and alcoholism, she was an S&M worker. So 
this is for anyone that's like interested in or looked into like the kink community that's like a big no-no for like people that are practicing S&M safely is like people that have a hard time regulating their emotions or mm-hmm. staying sober you do not like because you can take this down a really like actually yeah. abusive path so unfortunately like people that are out of control like it has it's there, yeah. there's a lot of like boundaries and stuff that have to be mm-hmm. followed in that and yeah if you're practicing S&M <laughs> safely you are a very in control person you are sober while you're practicing it is like a big mm-hmm. one I know a lot of the time but anyways yeah so basically from the time Mary was four years old her mother would offer her up to be abused by clients as part of her S&M routine um, and they would even sometimes pay Betty to SA her own daughter while they watched um, Mary, due to all this abuse, likely was also a chronic bedwetter, and she would oftentimes force herself to stay awake all through the night because if she was caught having wet the bed, her mom would rub her face in it and hang the mattress out for everyone to see and just like really make fun of her. Um, also, I should note that my voice is very shaky right now, and it's not because any reason other than I'm very freezing right now because the AC is blasting. And also, I inhaled a lot of pollen over the weekend, so I'm having a hard time, like, not sneezing <laughs> A little wobbly. So I'm a little wobbly. I'm sorry if I sound weird. Um, anyways, back into our story. So Betty also allegedly tried to murder Mary several times. Um, and at one time or another, Mary's family would allege that she had accidentally swallowed a bunch of sleeping pills. And in one of these instances, because there were multiple she had to be hospitalized, and Mary told the doctors that her mom had given her Smarties, the little, like, candy that's basically, like, the small pill-shaped yeah. sugar things. So there was yet another instance of Mary, quote-unquote, falling out of a second-story window. Um, yet another time, her mom choked her out. Um, and then there's one time where Betty even tried to give her away. So, and this story's really fucking sad, because, like, what could have been of Mary's mm-hmm. life? But... Basically, Betty, she walked Mary down to the adoption clinic to give her away. And, like, they were in the waiting room or something, and a woman came out crying because she was, like, deemed ineligible to adopt, basically. So Betty basically just goes, take this one, just, like, pushes her daughter to this woman. And she goes, I don't want her anyway, take her. So Mary ends up leaving with this woman who had come in to adopt a child. And Betty's sister, meanwhile, she knew that, Betty was, like, up to something, like, up to no good, basically. Mm -hmm. And so she had followed the family, so Mary and Betty, to the clinic. And then she ends up following the woman that adopted Mary and Mary to this woman's house to see where she lived. And then sister goes back to Betty and is like, you better pick up your fucking child or I'm going to call the police on you. And so Mm -hmm. Mary, I wish so badly that sister had just butted out because this woman like upon taking her from the adoption center like went and bought her a bunch of clothes and toys and like was feeding her a nice dinner when mary or mary's mom shows up and takes her daughter back and this woman was just like i think probably a saint and would have been a great mother and like was like no i bought these toys and these clothes for you take them you clearly need them like i this would have been a really great ending to the story of betty's had just like fucked off permanently but anyway because of all this trauma mary had a really hard time connecting with other kids or really making 
friends. Um, and so in her school life, Mary was known to be, like, inattentive and have violent outbursts, which, like, is common in kids that, you know, deal with traumatic abuse and things like that. Um, and so because of this, a lot of the other kids were scared of her. And so she would just, like, spend a lot of time alone and being teased by the other kids. But she did manage to make a couple of friends. So the first one was a girl that was a couple years older than her. Her name is Norma. So Norma's going to play a role in this story. The second girl was her same age. I'm not going to list her name here because not really that necessary. And unfortunately, her life ended really early because she was struck by a bus and killed right in front of Mary as they were playing in the street. Oh, my God. So it's just, like trauma with a side serving of trauma in this poor girl's life. So now she has her one friend left, Norma. They were like attached at the hip despite Norma being a bit older. Um, and it is something to note that Norma was labeled quote unquote simple. So back in the day, someone that would have like a learning disability or maybe, you know, autism or something like that, they might be labeled simple because they also had a hard time like connecting with other people, with mm -hmm. reading social situations and learning disabilities, things like that. So basically Norma would do whatever Mary told her to do and would just follow her around like a little puppy dog. Um, and this started to add up to trouble about the time that Mary was 10 and Norma was 12. So the first incident happens when the two girls, they took a young boy that was three years old um, from his home. They knocked on the door and they're like, we're going to go take little boy to go get some sweets. And so after about an hour, after having taken this boy from his home, the girls brought the boy to a local pub and he was just like bleeding profusely. And they said that he had fallen off a ledge. Um, so this is like the first thing where people are like, that's a little weird, but you know, nothing had happened prior to that. So they're just like, okay, maybe he really did just fall down. And again, like I said, these kids ran wild throughout the neighborhood during the day mm -hmm. from the age of like two or three. So it was really not like that strange. The well, next, and it seems like all the attentives were, all the adults were pretty inattentive. So they're mm -hmm. just like, yeah, whatever, who gives a fuck. Inattentive. Like I said, there was like a lot of crime, there was a lot of drug use, there was a lot of sex work happening in this neighborhood, so it was kind of just like a free-for-all. Um, the very next day, as the girls were walking past a sand pit, there was like some, like I think it was four or five, seven or eight-year-old girls, they were outside playing, and so Mary decided it was time for another violent outburst, and so she jumped these girls and was like punching them, beating them, choking them out, one of the girls ends up turning purple as Mary choked her out and ended up having like very severe bruising on her throat. And so the other girls, they did report the incident to the police. However, nothing was really done about it. Um, and so because of that, Mary's like, I can get away with practically fucking anything. And so mm -hmm. her behavior, unfortunately, only gets worse from here. So enter Mary's first murder victim. Of course, she's victimized other children in the neighborhood, probably many other times other than the two that we just have documented. But her first victim is four-year-old Martin Brown. So on May 25th of 1968, little Martin Brown, he leaves his aunt's house at about 3 p.m. Um, with some change, and he's going to go down to the local drugstore drug to get a lollipop, which I'm thinking about my niece, who is about one and a half right now, just barely walking and like 
I don't even think she's got words yet. So imagining a three-year-old walking down to a drugstore to buy, like, make a purchase by himself is incredible to me. But again, this is not out of the norm for this neighborhood. So he takes his little pocket change. He's going down to buy a lollipop from the drugstore. And he leaves the store with a little lollipop in hand about 3.15. And so, like, just to set the scene of this neighborhood a little bit further, um... The neighborhood, I think, at this point was kind of in the process of being leveled and sort of gentrified in certain areas. So there's a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of, like, construction zones that are just left unattended. Like, there's just rubble and stuff everywhere. Um, But in these abandoned houses, of course, the kids are running wild through the neighborhood. They go into these houses to play. So at about 3.30 that day, a group of neighborhood boys about, you know, between the ages of 9 to 11, they enter one of these abandoned buildings and they're looking for actually some scrap wood to build a fort with. And they find little Martin dead on the second story. Um, So they leave, an ambulance is called, um, and unfortunately they're not able to resuscitate him. So Martin's body didn't show any like real visible signs of struggle. But what they did find, and what was not reported to the general public, but remember this for later, they find an empty pill bottle of aspirin on the ground near him. Um, And so one of the assumptions made was that he had found this bottle and eaten the pills like candy. Again, this was not reported to the general public. So despite that knowledge that there was this empty bottle of drugs next to him the coroner's report listed the death as natural causes and that he had just simply died while playing that's what the death report listed which doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense um yeah but think about like underserved neighborhoods like if kids die they don't really give a shit they're just yeah. like yeah one well, less to feed so and one other thing that they failed to report but that they did later end up mentioning is that he had slobber and blood coming from his mouth So, like, clearly something had happened here that wasn't he just, like, healed over. It was just very strange, and, like, none of this made it into the initial reporting. None of this made it to the coroner's office. It was just listed as natural causes. Again, though, like, in this neighborhood, and we see this even nowadays in low-income areas, things are just not reported correctly, and things just get swept under the rug because, like, who who cares about the poor people, right? That's kind of what's happening here. So... Well, I mean, we do, but... Well, yeah. yeah. The government doesn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So the very next day after Martin was found, Mary was celebrating her 11th birthday at Norma's house. Um, But Mary, she can't even have one fucking good normal day at this point. And she, at one point during her birthday celebration, was in a different room. And Norma's dad walked in on Mary strangling Norma's little sister he quickly <laughs> separates the girls and shockingly, like, didn't think much of it. Um, he's like, kids will be kids. Yeah, he's just like, oh, yeah, they're just playing, like, a rough housing game, even though she is strangling his daughter. <laughs> so the parents in this story, like, zero out of ten on all fronts. Like, none of them are good. None of them have their shit together. Yep. So the next day, so this is day three of Norma's, or Mary's fucking crime spree. So the next day on the 27th, a daycare center is broken into and vandalized. And so amongst the mess, just general mess that they left behind, they left a bunch of notes for in particular that are of note. Um, 
one reads, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. <laughs> Another says, I murder so that I may come back. Um, the next one says, fuck off. We murder. Watch out, Fanny and F word. Bundle of sticks word. Um, the last one was really rambly and nonsensical, um, but it also made mention of murdering Martin. Um, but it just, like, didn't make any logical sense. And to read it, just, like, who doesn't make sense. So over the next few weeks, Mary would go over to Martin's house frequently to ask his mother how she was feeling. And her line of questions was just, like, really bizarre, even for an 11-year-old. So she would ask, like, are you crying over him? Do you miss him? Can I see Martin in his coffin? And she would ask all of this while, like, giggling and smiling like a little fucking psychopath. And so Martin's mom would just, like, kind of close the door on her and be like, what the fuck? And just, Mm. like, brush her off and be like, leave. Like, get away from here, you freaking psycho. (laughs) So, yeah, that, that was very strange. And, you know, all of these things, I think, hindsight for investigators and the people involved in this case are like, oh yeah, that's like a big red flag. But at the time they were just like, it's just like a weird neighborhood kid. Yeah. So nine weeks later, after Martin's death, a three-year-old named Brian Howie failed to return home for dinner. Um, And his parents, they eventually tried calling for him and instead, like he doesn't come. So they went ahead and they, like, searched the neighborhood with no luck. And so they form, like, a search party. Finally, the parents are fucking showing up and doing something. So soon there's, like, dozens of neighborhood people that have joined them in their search for the little boy. And amongst those helping search were Mary and Norma, who allegedly looked way too happy to be looking for a missing boy. They were smiling and skipping and giggling and, like, laughing the entire time they were searching. Um, and eventually around 11 p.m., Brian's body was found by police at an overgrown demolition site. Um, again, keep in mind there were there these just like everywhere in this neighborhood. Um, his body had been covered with weeds, and this time it was immediately clear to police that he was the victim of a homicide. Um, he had bruising around his neck and body and scratches all over his little face. And the postmortem investigation concluded that he had been strangled to death between 3.30 and 4.30 the day he went missing. Um, He also had the letter M carved into his stomach. And somehow they were able to tell that the M had actually once been the letter N. Um, But sometime after he died, someone had come back and then added the last line to make sure that it read an M instead of an N. So... They could also tell that the attacker had likely been a child because had it been an adult, a lot more force would have been used to strangle him. Like his windpipe would have been crushed. Whereas this one, like it was little hands, like just barely enough pressure to actually get the job done was used. Um, So the police, they do end up launching an investigation where they would end up interviewing 1200 children, including Mary and Norma. And they end up visiting these two multiple times because they were basically just fucking shady as all get out. And they would answer the questions, like, smiling. Again, like, little freaking psychopaths. Their story would just constantly be changing. And just, like, they looked really happy to be interviewed for murder. So Mary 
she's 11, so she starts to slip up. And when she began giving different details and versions of her story, people got real suspicious of her. In one interview, she mentioned that she had seen an eight-year-old boy playing with Brian and that he had hit him for no reason. And she also mentioned that the older boy had a pair of silver scissors with a broken handle and that he had once tried to cut off the tail of a cat with those scissors. Just like weird random details like that. However, this detail was immediately suspicious because details of the case that were not made public um, was that there was a pair of scissors that were found near Brian's body with a handle damaged in that way. So this is something either the killer would have only known about or that boy did have a pair of scissors like that and it was just known to people. Now, thankfully... Upon looking into the story, the boy that she tried to blame had actually been with his family at the airport. So he had like a rock solid alibi. He just was not even in town that day. So all of this is adding up to there only being two suspects remaining. And they were, of course, Mary and Norma. um, Because their accounts of that day just kept changing. They could not get it together. They're children. Like, why are we surprised? Um, So on August 4th, Norma ends up being interviewed for a fourth time. And in this interview, she ends up saying that, yes, she had been playing with Mary that day and that Brian was murdered that afternoon. And Mary had taken her to go see Brian's dead body. Um, She had also shown her the marks on his stomach and then hidden a razor blade under a block of cement. And that Norma, she, Mary told Norma that she couldn't tell anybody. So the detective is like, well, can you show me where the razor is? And so they go down to the site where Brian's body had been found. And once you fucking know it, just as Norma had described, a razor blade was found and Norma was taken down to the station to make her official statement. (sighs) But can you like, can you imagine being these cops and you're just like, there's a tiny child murderer just roaming around. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm assuming probably like in a lot of our like impoverished neighborhoods, like there is a ton of children because they don't have any access to like Mm -hmm. birth control or anything and also it's like a lot of these people are sex workers so i'm sure there's just like Mm -hmm. a higher higher amount of children so you just have like some random little sociopath running around with like a fucking knife yeah (laughs) like chucky i know like (sighs) mary 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 so at this point you know as we said norma's been taking down the station to make our statement And the police were like, we got to take this fucking bitch in. So they go down to Mary's. They collect her, bring her to the station for additional questioning. And Mary's sitting there the whole time. She's like acting annoyed and agitated. And the entire time she's sitting there asking for a lawyer. And like, that makes sense. Because this is an 11 year old that has been raised by criminals. She knows her fucking rights. She's like, I want a lawyer. However... (laughs) Upon being told that Norma had ratted her out and shown where the razor was, Mary immediately threatens to kill Norma as soon as she gets out of there. And (laughs) so basically, however, like, despite this, despite them being like, this girl's a fucking nuts, they didn't have concrete evidence on Mary. And for all they know, Norma's statement was just like, she was pinning it on Mary. So they had to let Mary go. And so a few days later, the detective in charge of the case ends up attending Brian's funeral, um, the one that they had just recently found. So Mm -hmm. he's there because he's like, well, I feel like, you know, that old trope with the murderer or like always returns to the scene of the crime or like comes to these things. 
So he goes there to suss people out and see if anyone's looking awful, like, suspicious or whatever. And it was at the funeral that he, like, absolutely knew with no uncertainty that Mary was guilty. And he goes, in his notes, he wrote, As they carry the coffin from the family's home, Mary stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands together. <laughs> and he thought to myself, my God, <laughs> I've got to bring her in or she'll do another one. Just like Mr. Burns, like, <laughs> like rub- <laughs> yeah. rubbing her hands together like an absolute freaking psycho. So oh my God. that afternoon, he's like, I'm done fucking around right now. So he makes the executive decision to arrest both Mary and Norma Bell. Um, Oh, fun fact. Both of their last names were Bell, but they were not related. It was just like a weird coincidence. Anyways, during Mary's questioning, she tries, obviously, to pin the whole thing on Norma. Um, The detective also brought up that the break-in at the nursery and the death of Martin Brown again, because he's like, something's weird. I feel like these are all related. So... Mary kind of cops to it and is like, yeah, um, I am aware of these things. And that was all Norma's idea and said that Norma was the brains of the operation, basically. Um, And so at this point, both girls are taken into custody and the evidence against them begins to pile up. So for starters, when they're investigating the girls, they went out and they collected the notebooks from the girls' school, like their personal notebooks to verify their handwriting Versus what was found at the daycare break-in. And it did match. So they could determine that the notes from the break-in, it looked like one girl had written a couple words, the next had written a couple, so on and so forth. So they also found in Mary's notebook some cryptic stories that she had written about Martin's death that included details that only someone that was involved would known. Um, she also drew a picture of Martin's body lying next to an empty bottle of aspirin. So it's becoming pretty clear that Mary has a lot more information on these cases than, you know, she's alluding to. They also were able to find gray fibers that matched the dresses of both Mary and Norma, both on or in the vicinity of where both bodies had been found. So this leads to the girls being charged, not just for Brian's murder, but they were also able to pin them for Martin as well. Um, and so their trial finally begins in December of 1968. And while most people are immediately convinced of Mary's guilt because her actions are just that of a crazy person, many people had a hard time believing that Norma had as much of a part in it. Again, she was labeled as simple. Um, and she was definitely like the type that was a follower. So people just didn't buy that she was the brains of the operation. Yeah. Like she just didn't have the capacity mm-hmm. to make her own decisions like that. And she didn't really understand what was going on. Right. She was- well, and another thing to note too, is that in the trial, Mary just like no emotion at all. Like she did not show any sign of remorse or anything like that. Whereas Norma, like upon being questioned, she was like crying, like seemed like she felt badly for what had happened. Um, and unfortunately for Mary, of course her mom doesn't help situation either because she would cause like loud public outbursts in the courtroom during the trial. Whereas Norma's family had a much more sympathetic appearance. And Norma, like we said, she showed a much more demure, like she seemed sympathetic and she had a very like childlike for her age, much younger understanding of the crimes. And she would also like just appear very nervous where Mary just fucking sat there like a little psycho. 
Like, she probably didn't understand the gravity of it. She right. was just like, oh, they, like, were mm-hmm. asleep when we left. Yeah. Like, it, it was very clear that Norma didn't understand, really, the consequences of her actions until her, like, consequences showed up. And she was like, oh, shit. Like, I didn't realize that this was what we were doing. Um, right. So, at the end of the trial, Norma ended up being acquitted because the court didn't believe that she understood fully what Mary was making her do. And public Mm -hmm. opinion is that Norma, although she was taken to and shown the bodies after being murdered, it was more of a situation where she just didn't say anything to the adults involved than actually, like, having a hand in the murder. So while she might have, like, seen the body and known where things were, she didn't really actually, like, do the action of the murder. Yeah. So she was Or, like, acquitted. watched Mary do it. And yeah. And was just like, are we going to go get lollipops? Yeah, she was like, oh, like, yeah, we can go get, you know, go down to the corner store and get some candy after this um, once you finish up this casual murder that you're doing. <laughs> Real casual. Yeah, so. <laughs> thankfully, I think, I don't know. I feel like maybe Norma should have gotten, like, a little bit of time in juvie. I don't know if that was a thing back then, but she was mostly acquitted for everything. And Mary was sentenced to murder. She was, you know, sentenced for the murder of yada yada. So she, her sentence was to be detained indefinitely on murder and manslaughter charges. And she was sent to a reform school while she was still young. Because obviously you can't send an 11, 12 year old into the jail system. Um, and despite their rough relationship, Mary's mom did come to visit her often. However, every time, despite Mary acting happy to see her upon her visit, like, it would prompt her to have really violent outbursts after her mom left. Um, and so Mary's mom, Betty, also sold her story to the tabloids and went off to make, like, a pretty hefty profit off the situation. So just, like, a shitbag, honestly. Um, Mary... She was actually able to profit off of this, too, and was offered 50,000 pounds for the exclusive rights to her story. Um, And she always, like, always, always blamed her mom for how she had turned out. Um, Mm -hmm. So upon basically aging out of the system that she was in, she was sent to another institution when she was a bit older, I think like 17, 18, where it was basically like a situation where she had to live at this facility, but she was out allowed to like go out and get a job. She was allowed to leave the facility basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is released from prison entirely from any sort of like incarceration in 1980 um, and was granted anonymity, anonymity, anonymity by the government. Anonymity. Yes. Thank you. So, in 1980, she's granted that by the government, um, and she goes on to have a daughter. And so, this anonymity was granted to her, her daughter, and eventually her granddaughter. Um, So, all in, she ends up only serving 12 years for the murder of two young boys. Um, Apparently, it's said that she was completely reformed upon release, or not informed, reformed upon release. Um, So, I don't know the exact details if she was maybe, like, given heavy therapy when she was in there i think it's easier to reform a criminal when they go in so young and they're not in the american prison system to you know offer them therapy and like a chance to better themselves um but also she was granted anonymity so who knows she could have gone on to like be a fucking shitty mom and we don't know after 1980 just like no one knows what happened to her 
I think, like, part of it, though, was, like, the situation that she grew up in because it was so mm-hmm. violent, like, such bad things were happening, and, like, she really just didn't have any day of, like, normal yeah. or peace until she did go into the prison system. Like, I would say mm-hmm. that she probably could, like, be reformed just because, it, like, she might not have been born a killer. It was just, like, the circumstances mm-hmm. that made her like that, but then once she realized that that's not yeah how she wanted to be, she was like, okay, well, I'll be a mom and mm-hmm. grandma. Yeah, I think... It probably helped that she was so, like, it's fucking terrible what she did, but she went into jail so young, and then being in jail was Mm -hmm. the only stable environment she ever had. Like, she had stable adults in charge of her, she had, like, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, she had access to therapy, I'm assuming, I would hope so. Clothes and toys. Yeah, so. Yeah. I think jail was a great place for her. Juvie was where she needed to be. And I hope Mm -hmm. that she eventually felt some remorse for what she did and that she did come out fully reformed. That's what I can hope for. But also I feel real bad for the families of the boys involved here because that Mm -hmm. is very sad. But yeah, that's Well, it's hard because you feel bad for Mary too because like she didn't deserve Mm -hmm. that any more than they did. So I don't, I truly don't think that she, despite like being kind of like creepy creepy and nuts and like not seeming remorseful i think that she just didn't understand that what she did was bad because of what her mom did to her because of what her dad did for a living and the surrounding just like no adults in her life ever like showed up for her the way they should have or like any of the kids in that neighborhood for that matter and so she didn't know she just didn't realize that what she was doing was so fucking horrible and hopefully therapy changed that yeah. All right. Well, are we ready to tarot time? So, for tarot time, we have the Queen of Wands. So, this is like sort of creative energy. This is like fire energy, like Leo whatever but she's vibrant she's out there she's creative she's passionate about her stuff um so she's what she's what's happening now she's ready to go um she's ready to uh this is the knight of pentacles this guy looks like well it doesn't have to be a guy it could be a lady too it could be the queen of wands but it's like hardworking. This is, like, your hard work is getting you to a point, um, where you can, like, have some vulnerability. This is a strength card reverse. Like, you don't have to just be, like, tough as nails, hard bitch. You can just be vulnerable with people and, like, be open and be okay with things being out there, um, because it's gonna lead to some great collaborations with the Three of Cups upright. So, you're gonna have some, some great collaborations, some teamwork, some good stuff going on. So I that's think a that's, good one. that's good enough for today. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. Positive. Not not bad. No, not at all. So, so yeah. Tarot time for this week. Be, be vulnerable, be open to uh, just putting yourself out there. Snaps so. for that. All right, so weekly Fuck FUs. Yous. Um, hmm. The Mormons. Yeah, the all of them. Utah TikTok moms for being just <laughs> messy. Um, but also, that's a fuck yeah, because we love messy, yeah. like, stuff that doesn't involve us in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. That I can just, like, sit back and, like, watch the collateral damage without having it, like, affect me in any personal way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
that is nice. Um, I really don't have any other FUs. I've had a pretty good week this week. I've had a pretty good week, too. I'm trying to think. I say fuck yeah for all the, like, stuff that's in the works that's happening. Yeah. Which is keeping us busy and away from you guys, but, uh, we think you'll understand. Mm-hmm. Stuff's, stuff's happening. Stuff's moving. Yeah. So. We're just, yeah. No FUs this week, because it's a good week. We have positive energy. We had a good tarot reading, so I think that it's... Let's good just, vibes. Let's keep the good vibes, man. We're rolling into summer right now. We're getting j- lots of sunlight and en- or exercise. Arguably too much for a ginger. I'm burnt to shit right now on my back, but that's oh, yeah. it felt I've good a- to be a lizard for a day and just like get crispy. <laughs> yeah, I've got like a huge, just like one strip right here. <laughs> Nowhere else. It's but. funny, you can tell where I tried to put sunscreen on my back, because there's, like, definite finger marks where my hand landed, <laughs> and then just red all around it. Like, I did not even try to rub it in. Um, that's why I just do the aerosol, because I'm just like, mm-hmm. The next day, when I went back outside, that's what I did. I stood in my shower and just, like, full body, like, aerosol <laughs> spray can of sunscreen. So. Under the clothes, and then mm-hmm. put the clothes on, and then on top of the clothes, yep. and, like, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, guys, that was a good positive note to end on, aside from the sunburn. But you know what? The sunburn means it's summer, so I'm going to be okay with that. So, Yeah. Peace out, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, <laughs> non-binary Scouts. We love you. We will see you next time. As always, um, I will recommend you follow us on Instagram because we will typically post before we release an episode, especially right now when we're kind of like inconsistent with posting. So, yeah, follow us there, and you'll stay up to date. You'll see us reposting little bubby child memes on our story. We'll just shit post every now and again. It's a good time. Pictures of cats. Pictures and, of cats, yeah. yeah. It's a great time to be existing. A ginger. Great time, yeah. It's a, both <laughs> Not a, a great time to be ginger. A great and terrible time to be a ginger. Oh, they came and picked <laughs> up their garbage can. Oh. Good for them. They found it. Alrighty, guys. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye.